Good evening and welcome back to Editing Aloud. I have with me, as always, a panel of extremely well-informed journalists. And Rob Rowe's financial mail cover story this week on delistings from the JSE. We've had 21 delistings this year alone, uh, where the stock exchange used to have 600-plus listed companies. It's down into the 300s. Is the equity market becoming irrelevant? I mean, I, I don't think it's becoming irrelevant, but it's a lot harder for people to, to list now, I think it's not a compelling thing. You go to the market, you list your company on the stock exchange to raise money to invest. We have an economy that doesn't suggest there are many places to invest. So people are not really needing the capital particularly. And also the companies that have been listed on the stock exchange, have a lot of them have been flamed really bad. Evaluations are really low for many companies. So people just aren't finding it a compelling proposition. And the problem with that is that your pension funds um, are, are invested in, in, in the JSE. So you have fewer companies listed, you have fewer alternatives for pension funds to invest, and it means that the, that the, the I suppose, the diversity of your pension fund portfolio suffers. You have a thinner and thinner slice of the South African economy that you're being exposed to. Julieta, you wrote the story with Rob and, and colleagues from the Financial Mail. Is there a sense in which it's not just a case that there's not a good enough reason to list on the JSE, but that it's kind of often too much trouble to be listed? Partly. Um, regulation is, uh, and the expense of listing is something that companies have to deal with. Um, but I, I think more importantly, um, you feel like you're not going to see an increase in your share price, which is actually critical. If you're going to issue new equity in order to grow your business, you want to do that in a rising share price environment. And we're not seeing that. In fact, we've seen exactly the opposite, especially for the small and mid-cap stocks in the JSE. Uh, so where's the incentive really for them to list? Where's the incentive for investors to buy uh, where you almost guarantee to make a capital loss, which is what's been happening over the last couple of years? I mean, some of the st statistics that we came across in this um, article were fascinating. Keith McLaughlin, who's a, a small cap portfolio um, investor with Alpha Wealth, says our uh, small cap index is the cheapest equity in the world, in the world. So small caps um, have been trailing large cap stocks um, in many jurisdictions, in fact, everywhere in the world. But South African small cap equity is by a long margin the cheapest, which means it's the valuations are crazy. I mean, Rob, I think you it pulled up the stats. It should be an incentive on, to list. Exactly. People should be racing there. Yeah, and uh, they can get um, private equity um, has come to the fore um, a lot more in the last few years. A lot of flows into private equity and, and um, private equity is kind of seen as a, as a, a, a way to raise capital for businesses. Um, and you're seeing uh, firms trade on higher valuations in the private space than in the listed space. That's a perversion of the way things should be. Generally, you would find higher valuations um, on a stock uh, for a listed liquid asset rather than a private asset, and it's changed in South Africa. So the whole economics of, of capital raising, if you like, have changed. I mean, yeah. Sekonati, should we be worried as a country about the stock exchange in a way becoming less and less central? To no, not necessarily. Look, you, you, th th there are many ways you can look at, uh, at this. Uh, I wouldn't worry much about the delistings. In this instance, I say in the list here we've got 21 companies. You could add the, the soon to be delisted ones as well. Uh, Pioneer and Tissot Blackstar, for example. Uh, Clover in here and Lawnman have been delisted. Those were actually uh, good deals where uh, the, the, it, it, the, there was a buyout, a shareholder buyout. So, so the, 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 
at least those delistings are happening uh, for a good reason. I mean, but you uh, need to have new stocks coming onto the exchange. Th right? that, that is the point exactly. Mm -hmm. So you, you need not worry so much about the delistings, uh, particularly uh, out of corporate action, positive corporate action, but you have to worry about the lack of new listings, mm -hmm. and that is where our problem is. Uh, at this point in time, who wants to, to, to list a company to do what uh, with the capital when uh, there, there are no opportunities, as, as Julieta has correctly said? So the biggest problem here is, is the economy, not the JSA itself. Uh, if people see enough uh, opportunity to deploy uh, capital into, in, in, into, the, into the broader economy, then they will uh, naturally go to the JSA to find that capital in order to, to deploy into business. So the sad state of our equities market in terms of new listings and new capital raising is simply companies don't need the money because the economy yes, is not Yes, uh, that, that is the part to worry about. And the people buying out and delisting these companies are taking them private. So it's not like they're taking uh, uh, cash out of the economy. It's just out of the JSE because uh, they can do much better uh, uh, outside of the, the, the added regulation of the JSA. I mean, would you wish, oh, sorry, I'll come back to you, Julieta. <laughs> sure, would yeah. you wish, are you worried about the sort of relative decline of the JSE? Um, I actually would want to bring in, um, in an international markets because I think there's an interesting trend that's there. And I think it also speaks to what Sikonati is talking about, uh, that more and more people are, looking at the regulation and especially the microscope that your company comes under as being unattractive. But more importantly, there's more money in private markets now and people are just choosing to go the alternative route. And I think entrepreneurs as well and also businessmen, less regulation, but more importantly, you also get to, I guess, control the narrative a bit better when you don't have um, so much... Um, uh, so much of a microscope on you. And the other one is you can almost see that the regulation is getting to people just with the number of companies in the last three to four months on the JSC that have chosen not to even report their, their results on time. You know, little things like that just show you the direction that the JSC is it going. It should worry us as investors, surely, Julieta. Mm. Uh, yeah, it's less choice, as Rob said. Um, although, I mean, actually, you know, if you're a South African now, you can buy stocks anywhere in the world. You don't, um, you're only limited in, in pension funds are limited by Regulation 28. So they can't take more than 30%, they can't invest more than 30% of those funds in offshore stocks. But there's nothing stopping you or me or Sikonati from opening a, an account and buying shares, buying LVMH or Amazon or Apple. Um, but you're not buying shares in local companies, the no. money, you're not getting an inflow of investment into this economy. No. Yeah. I mean, I mean, net foreigners, I think, were net, net sellers of 30 billion rand in the first half of the year in terms of the JSE. So you have foreign investors pulling out of the JSE. That's, that's, that's the worrying part as well. Yeah, foreign investors pulling out and then South Africans themselves not actually buying because they, they see the returns aren't great. So the returns, you know, why... You, you would want to put your money into a stock exchange where the companies are appreciating in value yeah. and you're going to make money rather than where you almost guarantee to make a loss. But just going back to your point about new listings, um, Mark Hassenfuss actually was the genesis of the story. He wrote about, he wrote about the class of 1987 listings boom um, and a few of the companies that have come out of that class of 87. Um, there were like two... Investec? Investec. Uh, Investec, Mediclinic. Uh, he talked about but, four little small caps. a little bit later. Yeah, mm. done really well. CMH, New World, Electronics the kind of quirky little companies, Spur um, and Bola Metcalf. But there were 200 plus companies that listed in 1987. 
when people had a taste there for was also a stock market <laughs> crash. There was also a stock market crash. I, do, I mean, one concern, um, just to, to kind of wrap this up, is that you get, there's the potential to get less and less scrutiny of big companies because the media, the financial media, is not robust. Um, the analyst community is shrinking. People are leaving the JSE. I mean, what does that mean for us, Econati, if we're getting less scrutiny, less transparency that's being demanded of big companies? I, I, I wouldn't say... Uh, analysts or even media is not robust enough because the people you have left behind should ideally be the specialists, the people that can actually do this. But there's always been a culture, particularly with analysts who think uh, and fund managers who, who, do, who are not independent. I mean, you know the case only too well of Tomat and, in, and, and that investor analyst. They, they prefer to talk behind closed doors, which does not do too much for transparency and, and the robustness of the, of the, of the, of the market uh, as we see it. But the JSC is there and of course the JSC itself needs as much spotlight uh, as possible. So I wouldn't worry too much about, about there uh, being a shrinking analyst market. It, it's never been that useful anyway uh, when, when it comes I'm to... Sure when it comes watching to holding, will disagree. Uh, again, they will disagree behind closed doors. They won't... <laughs> Look, we, we, we do still have one of the best regulated sort of stock markets and corporate sectors. We still get brownie points for the quality of our financial regulation and our um, corporate governance. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it is the JSC's rules and specifically the new rules they've been thinking about now are certainly um, world-class. I mean, it is a world-class exchange. Um, but, I mean, part of the reason why I think small caps have taken such a beating is the trend over the last, perhaps the biggest trend this century investing has been ETFs, exchange-traded funds. I think it went from 100 billion in 2000, turn of the century, in ETFs across the world, $100 billion, and it's now $5 trillion. And ETFs essentially just buy the large companies. They buy the big, big trackers. So the small companies, you know, 20 years ago, you'd ask your stockbroker to buy a selection of companies and they choose some small companies. Now, it's, you put money into a low-cost ETF and they tend to just pick the big companies and that creates a self-reinforcing um, momentum, whereas the smaller companies are the ones that suffer. So there these other tides which are affecting this as well. Um, and as the JCCO pointed out, it isn't just South Africa suffering in this. It's a global trend that, that markets across the world. I think um, we are down 13% year on year, uh, well, this year alone, and I think Leila Faree told us that that the, the global figure is about 19%. So South Africa isn't that unique. In terms of trading volumes. Just, we've got one minute just to go to, to the ad break. Um, Rob, just quickly, the leg, Alan Gray died this week. The, who, who the actual founded, guy, not the, the actual person who founded <laughs> the firm, which pioneered value investing. I mean, what is, is his legacy in the South African, it's, to the South African market? It's interesting. I mean, Alan Gray, like you said, it's the father of, of value investing. And if you look at the returns over the longer periods, Alan Gray is streets ahead of most other invest, investment managers. They pick companies that are unloved and they stick with them if there's deep value there and, it, and it, it creates results. But the thing about Alan Gray that was amazing is that he donated basically all his wealth to his foundation, to charities, to education. One figure I read was $9 billion of his $10 billion fortune was given away. Um, and I think that, that is something that's fantastic. Mudiwe Gavaza, Telcom telling us that it is in talks to buy an unnamed something what is the unnamed something do you think well many in the markets expect think feel uh see divine whatever words we want to use it, uh, the, it's sort of like a big public secret that it's sell see and what was particularly interesting is that yesterday um, at the results presentation 
Um, because what happened is that it's telcoms, seven, results, telcoms results presentation. Um, in the morning at around seven, they put out their results, financial results uh, up to September. Then around eight, eight thirty, they put out the vaguest um, cautionary statement, just saying that we have an acquisition. It's going to make a material impact on our share price. And the whole presentation, they said nothing about the cautionary. And the first question the from the from the an analysts at the end was, guys, where your investors? What is this cautionary statement? And Sipo would not divulge anything. And all he said is, it's meaningful. Because they wanted to know, okay, if you don't want to tell us what the company is, how transformational, how big is this deal going to be? And all Sipo was saying is, it's going to be meaningful. This is not the first time, actually. Which is nice that they're putting out statements that aren't not meaningful. <laughs> 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 no, I think this is, um, what do you want, yeah. second, time, third, time, third, third time. time lucky, possibly. But I mean, I spoke to, we spoke to uh, um, Paul Theron uh, and a couple of other analysts. Um, and a, a couple of people are really horrified that Telcom <laughs> would even think to go to sell C, which has... Uh, um, uh, proved a poison chalice for blue label telecoms, yep. which of course bought a 45% stake in it and has seen its share price absolutely decimated on that investment. So it, it costed money to buy into Cell C. It also cost it, uh, it its, its actual oh, listed market say. value uh, because of the incredible amount of debt that Cell C still carries. It's less than it was, but it's, it's still weighty. I mean, telecoms got a fair amount of debt on its balance sheet. If they add on Cell C, uh, just you know, the obvious the numbers, I think it's 11 billion on Telcom's balance sheet at the moment. Cell C is, we think it's 8.9, but it's possibly more. It's you know, 20 so billion bucks. Is this, is this a good idea, Telcom buying Cell C? Look, I, I know definitely from a very reliable, reliable Telcom source that they did uh, look at it and, and do a proper three months of due diligence last year and decided to walk away. What has changed? <laughs> Maybe they're getting it a lot cheaper. Sure, they can get it a lot cheaper, but uh, the debt is not getting any cheaper. It's in fact getting mm. even more expensive and, and the infrastructure needs a, a lot of work and a lot of money. Uh, everything to me points uh, to something else. There's, no, there's absolutely no reason why telecom should buy sell C. But have you thought about Altron, for example? Telcom possibly buying Altron. Yep. Okay. It's an okay. interesting one. But I, there's absolutely yeah. no reason why Telcom should why Telcom needs sell C. It doesn't. They did, I repeat again, a proper due diligence and, and they decided And they walked away. They walked away. Right. They walked away. They they, they, so they nothing, went it's got worse, year. not better. It, it, yeah. it's, it's gotten worse now and, and not at not any better. Well, they get uh, some of Celsius' network, right? I mean, the fact is that, you know, these two players, that the two smallest companies, two smallest mobile operators, individually, yeah. they're losing. Th that, Together, that it's the only way they can basically tackle MTN or, or Vodacom, plus they get the network infrastructure. Yeah. Well, but there's not much network infrastructure to, to, to talk about at, at Celsius because, one, they are piggybacking on, on, on MTN, and, and they just terminated recently uh, an, an agreement with Vodacom in order to move to, to mm. MTN. And MTN is sitting there with half a billion rand owed by Cell C uh, that it cannot pay for using that network. So it's, 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 it's a total disaster. I, <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't be touching it with the longest budge. Now, I put it to you that the most likely acquisition would be Altron, and I say that absolutely with no uh, evidence or any, any other reason to believe. But look at it this way. 
two years ago, MTN actually did try to buy Altron, yeah. and and they 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 realized it was not going to work. You just need to go read Mtetonyati's book uh, that's out. Uh, mm. Instead, in the end, Altron uh, acquired the CEO of MTN who tried to buy them <laughs> and streamlined the business from 10 operations, I think, to about uh, three or four. Yeah. Now, that is what would make a lot more sense for, for, for telecom. I'm going to move along to some other... Telcom, let's not forget, was a state-owned enterprise that turned around. Um, let's look at a couple of state-owned enterprises that are very unturned around, or particularly ease. SAA. Telcom screaming towards the ground. Hurtling towards the ground. South African Airways retrenching up to a thousand workers. Is this going to fix its problems, Mudiwe? I personally don't think so because um, I think just from my understanding, you've accumulated 28 billion rand in losses over a number of years. Um, you've got a massive amount of debt sitting there. And you're not really, because it feels like you're just plugging a hole, right? And uh, I, not to be sympathetic too much to the unions, but it always feels like the first lever that's being pulled at is... Um, what's it called? Is the is, personnel yeah, cost is as the opposed personnel to other costs? Cost. Yeah, um, because you've got you've got a massive fleet. Um, they are, my understanding, SAA, for example, flies a lot of routes that are not profitable in any way simply because they're called the national carrier. So let's say now straight to Limpopo, for example, where no one else would touch that thing. I'd be more, right? I'd be more concerned about <laughs> they're why they're they keeping SA, XA Express going. Yeah. Never but mind unprofitable routes in small, out-of-the-way places. They should do that as well. They need to no. shrink their staff as well yeah. as close down unprofitable the routes. Yeah. I mean, the, the airlines, the union this morning, I heard the union people talking about how they're going to close down the airline, effectively yeah. shut it down. So what? It's not ESCOM. If SAA shuts down, yeah. people will take another airline and then you'll they prove... They are already. How absolutely <laughs> so, relevant so we know. You are. Indeed. Yeah. And why is the government so insistent on bailing out an SAA, which you could argue is uh, it's the vehicle for middle class, middle to upper class South Africans, where you could spend those billions on improving the public transport system used by millions, millions of South Africans. Instead, we've got SAA sucking um, public funds that we can ill afford when actually there is a, f a far more pressing criteria to improve Prasa or Metro Rail or roads or, um, I don't know, uh, I suppose coming up with some sort of subsidized, better, safer bus system uh, for, uh, to deal with apartheid spatial inequalities. I mean, why are we bailing out SAA? Sikonati, would you pull the plug on SAA? I would have done it 10 years ago. Why do you need it? Why do you need it? Somebody make it's, me a case. It's, Why it's do you need South it? African Airways, it's poor people subsidizing rich people to fly around the world. <laughs> That's what it is. People who actually have no homes, no houses to live in, no, no drugs in the, in the state clinics, no roads to, to drive on, and uh, not even electricity. Uh, they, they don't have metro rail, which should be taking... 2.5 million people to and from work every single day. But the money is going to South African Airways. Useless airline in the sky. The post office also retrenching. Would you pull the plug on the post office? No, I wouldn't. Is that I a wouldn't. very different case? Uh, that, that, that's a totally different case. The post office 
has proven with Mark Barnes's tenure, uh, we, we, we must take our, 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 our heads off to him uh, for showing the government that you do not need uh, crooks who buy uh, uh, doctorates to, to, to distribute, uh, to distribute uh, uh, the social grants uh, to, 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 to people when you have an infrastructure of 2,400 post offices around the country that can easily do that. Yes, of course, there were indeed uh, uh, teething problems, but uh, post office now is generating revenue of 1.9 billion rand a year only from social grants. That on its own is enough to save uh, the post office. Now the issue is, can you still have in, in, in 2020 a post office that relies on delivering parcels and mail, or can it? Uh, you, you need an integrated financial services system, as Mark Barnes tried to do. Uh, th th that is the future. Yes, they are cutting down stuff. They are right-sizing the organization. 776 people are leaving at the end of this month, November, and there's, there's hopefully more to come. And that will save, only the 776 uh, people will save 14 million rands per month for, for, for South African Airways, and that will do a lot to improve. So, Rob Rose, you wanted to come, you wanted to come in. Rob? Oh, no, no. I do think, for example, South African Airways, what you could have done is you could concession out the small routes that are unprofitable to private enterprise. If they want to run it, see how you can do it. Try and make a profit, profit by doing so. And the routes that are profitable, like South Africa to London, um, keep the ones that work. Keep the stuff that works. I mean, there are options to do it other than just pulling the plug entirely. But we haven't done that. We've subsidized this whole wretched money-guzzling mess. Mm. In fact, I mean, this, this, for some reason, I, the last week's investment conference, um, one of the Cyril Ramaphosa, to everyone's somewhat surprised, managed to come up with a cumulative 371 billion rands of pledges, uh, much of that stuff that companies were going to do anyway, um, and which is as it should be in a way. I mean, and it was arguably worth highlighting what companies are doing anyway. Did you... You talk about concessioning to the private sector. Was there enough credit given to the private sector for the fact that they actually are doing the investing? Is there enough role for business, if you like, that's in the sort of political narrative I at mean, the I, moment? I do think that um, business has done a lot already, despite a parlous environment. I mean, would you invest much money into this environment, let alone $371 million, billion, um, knowing that you're stuck in an economy that's producing less than 1% growth, when there are many other countries very close to South Africa that are, that are far exceeding that. Um, and I think there's been a strong sort of nationalist call for countries to invest as a patriotic act. And that's worked to some extent. Companies have invested. Um, but, at, you know, if the country's, if the economy is not fixed, then it's, it's a deeply irrational move to keep putting more money into an economy that goes downwards. If we have GDP, debt to GDP levels of 80%, how rational is it for people to be investing more in this country? So I think it's bought governments a little bit more time, um, but unless they fix that, then, then it's going to destroy the rationale for companies to invest. 30 seconds each. Investment conference, success or failure? Um, I think one of the big things that it highlighted for me, uh, one of the sessions I personally attended, um, there were pledges that were done by BMW, by Isuzu, by Toyota. These are all international companies. And to your point that um, you have companies simply announcing what they were going to spend anyway, um, I think it speaks more when an international company says we're going to put in this amount of money because as an international organization, as Toyota, I could be throwing this money in America somewhere else, or yeah. somewhere Jules? else. Yeah. I, think it's, I think it's uh, a successful spin mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's government piggybacking on um, the efforts 
uh, and the hard um, won and fought capital of business um, and then showing it off um, to to put themselves in a good light, I think. Uh, quite frankly, um, I'm a, a real cynic. You're skeptic. Does that help to boost confidence, perhaps, Sikhnati, in our last couple Party of seconds? does not boost confidence. It's, it's <laughs> action on the ground that does. So ha having Ford and BMW repeat all over what they are doing does not boost confidence. Go fix the economy, go, go restructure the economy, and then you'll get investments. Yeah. Fix, We're going to stop it there? Fix before the state. Fix, fix the, the state, state and fix the economy. economy. Will fix itself. We'll be back with you for another edition of Editing Aloud next week.